So it's good to be back home, and for those who thought of us and prayed for us, thank you. And I had a good time with family and a few friends in Korea. And as some of you know, I've spent the first nine years of my life there before immigrating here. I visited once back in the summer of 2004, so it's been a while. Now I've spent the majority of my life in the States. I've been a citizen of U.S. more than twice as long as I've been a citizen of the Republic of Korea. I know the streets of Laurel better than the streets of Daegu. So during this trip, I felt as if my identity was split between two communities, two very different cultures. But there's a third and perhaps the most Not perhaps, actually the most important factor in my identity. It relates to a place that you can't find on a map. The closest parallel is found here. This morning, as we worship God, remember his son and fellowship together. As a Christian, what we do here as a church should have the most impact on my self-understanding. As our Lord taught us, our spiritual family is formed by those who do the will of the Heavenly Father. As Peter reminds us, we are a holy nation. Paul tells the Philippians, our citizenship is in heaven. One of my favorite reminders of our group identity from outside of the Bible comes from the second century apologetic work entitled the Epistle to Dionysus. Quote, Christians are indistinguishable from other men either by nationality, language, or customs. They do not inhabit separate cities of their own or speak a strange dialect or follow some outlandish way of life. Their teaching is not based upon reveries inspired by the curiosity of men. Unlike some other people, they champion no purely human doctrine. With regard to dress, food, and manner of life in general, they follow the customs of whatever city they happen to be living in whether it's Greek or foreign. And yet there is something extraordinary about their lives. They live in their own countries as though they were only passing through. They play their full role as citizens, but labor under all the disabilities of aliens. Any country can can be their homeland, but for them, their homeland, wherever it may be, is a foreign country. Like others, they marry and have children, but they do not expose them. They share their meals, but not their wives. They live in the flesh, but they are not governed by the desires of the flesh. They pass their days upon earth, but they are citizens of heaven. Obedient to the laws, they yet live on a level that transcends the law. Christians love all men, but all men persecute them. Condemned because they are not understood, they are put to death but raised to life again. They live in poverty, but enrich many. They are totally destitute, but possess an abundance of everything. They suffer dishonor, but that is their glory. They are defamed, but vindicated. A blessing is their answer to abuse, deference their response to insult. For the good they do receive, the punishment of malefactors, but even then they rejoice as though receiving the gift of life. They are attacked by the Jews as aliens. They are persecuted by the Greeks. 
Yet no one can explain the reason for this hatred. In quote. It's a good reminder of our identity. Now, unfortunately, churches then and churches today forgot and forget to live according to their true identity. Like ancient Israel, we falter between two opinions. We set our minds on things below and not on things above. As a result, many so-called Christians do not look distinct from the world. Pastors and leaders have moral failings. This is why we need reminders from the word concerning our identity as Christians, our duties, both as individuals and as a congregation. And today's passage will give us a good reminder of our duties and our identity. But before I read it, let's zoom out and step back and look at the big picture of Galatians. It's been a while, so you got the salutation in the first five verses, the thesis statement in verses 6 to 10. In the body of the letter, many observe three major sections from chapter 1, verse 11 to the end of chapter 2. Paul gets personal and defends the origins of the gospel. In 3 and 4, the apostle gets doctrinal and defends the contents of the gospel. Finally, from chapter 5 to nearly the end of chapter 6, Paul gets practical and defends the freedom in the gospel. So we're in that section where our belief intersects with our actions. The indicatives propel us to the imperatives. The gospel believing leads to gospel living. In Galatians 5, God is going with some of these. Note the connections between doctrine and behavior. Chapter 5, verse 6, In Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith working through love. Verse 13, You, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Verse 24, Those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with his passions and desires. And we build on chapter 5 as we start chapter 6. Paul marks off a new section and addresses his audience as brethren. There are more connections between who we are and what we do. He continues to be practical and defends the freedom of the gospel. Chapter 5 ended with reminders of what we should not do, and today's passage tells us what we should do. There should be less biting, devouring, less pride, less provoking and envying of one another. In place of these, there should be more and more of the positive picture of the gospel community we see in chapter 6, 1 to 10. So let's read the passage now. So Galatians 6, if you're using your pew Bible, you'll find it in page 813. Galatians 6, 1 to 10. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, 
You who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one examine his own work, and then he will have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another. For each one shall bear his own load. Let him who is taught the word share in all good things with him who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. But he who sows to the spirit will of the spirit reap everlasting life. And let us not grow weary while doing good. For in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. I don't have much to say about the structure of the passage. I think the editors of the New King James Version Bible got it right when they divided the verses into three parts. Correspondingly, I would like to focus on three practical ways we can stay true to our identity as a gospel community. One, exercise accountability with the gentle and careful humility of Christ. Exercise accountability with the gentle and careful humility of Christ. That's verses 1 to 5. Two, support those who teach the word of God. Support those who teach the word of God. That's verse 6. And three, persevere in good works through the Holy Spirit. Persevere in good works through the Holy Spirit. That's verses 7 to 10. So these are three ways we can be a gospel community. So first, exercise accountability with the gentle and careful humility of Christ. Accountability doesn't exactly sound like a religious word. Sure, we use it when we discuss company audits, weak leadership structures in need of it, politicians who are out of line. But a healthy church will exercise accountability because sin is a real problem on this side of eternity. Jesus talked about this matter in Matthew 18. Paul to the Corinthians. And if a church exists long enough, there will be a man or a woman overtaken in trespass. There will be a confrontation and hopefully repentance and restoration. That's how a gospel community handle sin. Let's see if I can talk about this spiritual matter of accountability using an illustration from the physical realm. So a human body is not healthy because it never gets sick. A human body is healthy because when it gets sick, it can get better. Let me say it again. A human body is not healthy because it never gets sick. A human body is healthy because when it gets sick, it can get better. 
In the same way, no church of sinners saved by grace is perfect until glory. But a healthy church has a spiritual immune system in place. Such a congregation can target and attack the invasion of sin into the local body without severely damaging its members. Okay, I'm not a, so I'm not a doctor, I'm a pastor, and I apologize if I'm getting the medical details wrong. And if I do, I'm going to hear from Iray. Um, but let me continue a little bit longer. If a healthy church does not ignore but addresses the one or the ones overtaken in trespass, if it has a healthy immune system against the infections of sin, who are those antibodies that fight the antigens, the members of the body who protect the local body? The answer is right there in the middle of verse 1. You who are spiritual. The duty of accountability is not limited to pastors, though I certainly hope pastors lead in this area. You do not need a seminary degree. You don't need a title of deacon or elder to restore the sinning brother or sister. Just be sure you're not carnal and immature. A mature believer not only cares about his or her spiritual well-being, those who are spiritual keep others accountable and think about their spiritual siblings. They say, I am my brother's keeper. So now you may not need an official title or position to be a restorer, but you do need the right spirit and attitude. When we approach the erring believer, we must be sensitive. That's why I said exercise accountability with the gentle and careful humility of Christ. We saw that word gentleness earlier in chapter 5, verse 23, which goes to show that you can't have a spirit of gentleness without the Holy Spirit of God. Gentleness should accompany our correction in church discipline and how we speak to all people. In other places, we observe that it overlaps with humility and meekness. Being gentle while confronting sin is an important way we exhibit Christ-likeness. And while we may embrace the sinner as he or she repents, we should never embrace the sin that he or she commits. We draw close to the wayward sheep, but keep our distance from the corrupting influence. You see in the last part of verse 1 how we must exercise accountability with the gentle and careful humility of Christ. Considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. We saw this principle, if you remember, back in Jude, verse 23. Say with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. You save the sinner and hate the sin. The battle against sin, caring for the flock, the task of growing spiritually together are not meant to be solo acts. They're not meant to be individual exercises. That burden is too great to be done alone. And that's why we have each other. And when we bear one another's burdens, 
gentleness, and we restore the sinner without falling into sin ourselves, we fulfill the law of Christ. One commentator summarizes this duty of Galatians and really the duty of every believer, quote, instead of imposing the law as a burden upon others, they should rather lift their burdens and so fulfill Christ's law, end quote. Sadly, when we see sin in others, we often turn to legalism instead of the law of Christ. This is because of pride. Legalism is about exalting myself at the expense of others. The law of Christ is about exalting others at the expense of self. Unless we understand the humility of Christ, like really understand it, we won't understand the gospel. If we don't understand the gospel, we can't practice biblical accountability. But here's a reminder of the gospel. When it comes to sin, all of us are guilty. We were tempted, overtaken, and trespassed, and now we need restoration and reconciliation to God. So God the Father and Creator sent His Son, fully God, fully man, to save us. Jesus came as gentle and lowly in heart to give us heavenly rest. He was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. And yet it was laid on Christ that heavy weight, the iniquity of us all. The Lord of glory was the least deserving of such burden, and yet only he could take it upon his shoulders. We sang about this earlier. Jesus, who but you could bear, wrath so great and justice fair. Every pang and bitter throw, finishing your life of woe. That is what he did when he went to the cross. He paid a penalty of sin that we should pay and rose from the dead on the third day. He ascended to heaven, and someday he'll return to judge all mankind. Now you don't need to bear the burden of guilt any longer. Jesus has finished the work of salvation. All that remains is our response. We must repent and believe. Lay down and turn from our sins and place our hope of heaven in Christ alone. There's nothing we can do to earn it. It's all by grace. We are nothing but humble, poor beggars, stretching out our hands and receiving the gift from a generous king. So this reminder of God's grace is important as we move on to verse 3. We learn there that we must exercise accountability with the gentle and careful humility of Christ. It takes humility to be like Christ and bear the burden of others. Without humility, you deceive yourself to be something when you're really nothing. Yes, even seasoned Christians over time, after many years of faithful service, can grow prideful. We can become arrogantly judgmental. To prevent that from happening now, Paul takes us to the scene a future judgment in verses 4 and 5. 
Let me give a clarification of each verse before I talk about it. First, verse 4. When Christians stand before God someday, it won't be to decide whether they get into heaven or not. No, for the truly saved, that's been decided 2,000 years ago at Calvary. The decision there will deal with the gain or loss of heavenly rewards. Paul talks about this using an illustration of a building in 1 Corinthians 3, 9 to 15. A true saint never has to fear losing the foundation of Christ or his own life, but he may suffer the loss of rewards, just as a fire destroys an unstable roof or tears down the fragile walls. Now here's a clarification of verse 5. Verse 5 is not contradicting what was said back in verse 2. Verse 2 talks about bearing a big burden together today. Verse 5 talks about bearing a little load alone on Judgment Day. Verse 2 has the word bear in the present imperative. Verse 5 has the word bear in the future tense. But now, how do these verses 4 to 5, talking about the future, help us stay humble now? Well, when we bear the common burden of saints, it's inevitable that some will carry more weight than others. It's easy to compare ourselves, put ourselves on a pedestal while we put others down in the pit. We find reasons to rejoice because we're better. We do more out there, and we contribute more here at church. But our joy should not be in the fact that we're more spiritual and others are more prone to trespass. Our joy should not come from having five talents as opposed to two talents or one talent. Our ultimate happiness comes from Jesus saying to us, Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. To make sure your heart is not lifted above your brethren. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord. So with with such proper mindset concerning the future, we're able to enjoy sweet fellowship with one another now. We can exercise accountability with the gentle and careful humility of Christ. And moving on to verse 6, we see another way to affirm our identity as a gospel community. Support those who teach the word of God. I won't spend too much time on this as it's only one verse and it's pretty straightforward. But one may wonder why verse 6 is here in this passage. I mean, you could easily and smoothly go from verse 5 to verse 7 as the idea of future judgment and the idea of sowing and reaping are quite compatible. But God, in his infinite wisdom, put verse 6 right there, and that's where it ought to be. And here's my best guess as to why. Notice how Paul's especially concerned about deception in the context. He said in verse 3, if anyone thinks himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. He will say in verse 7, do not be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. Whether the deception comes from oneself or others, 
Here's a great solution. Be taught the word and support those who teach the word. A gospel community can stay true to its identity and stay clear of deception as it supports those who teach the word of God, the word of truth. Unfortunately, we don't have financial statements or budgets from the early apostolic age. But even without such details, we can surmise the material resources were leveraged to support the preaching and teaching ministries of churches. Some churches today do not think we should staff pastors and teachers. They say we should instead use the funds for the poor. But I don't think it's either or. We should devote Paul and other apostles would agree. The support of the poor and the support of ministers are both found in Galatians. The idea of supporting ministers is also found in 1 Corinthians 9.11. Paul asks, if we have sown spiritual things for you, is it a great thing if we reap your material things? He also says in 1 Timothy 5.17-18, Let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. So as we support those who teach the word of God, we will build a better gospel community. One more practical action as we we can take to uh, affirm our group identity, persevere in good works through the Holy Spirit. As I said already, Paul seems to be especially wary of lies that could derail the Galatians. Biblical accountability and biblical teaching will certainly help against deception. But doing good works is also an integral part of the healthy church life. Our Lord Jesus commanded, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Paul elsewhere wrote, We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Here Paul uses an agricultural illustration. It's obvious to all of us, farmers or not, what Paul says in verse 7, whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. He takes this principle from nature and applies it to the spiritual realm in verse 8. The choice is not between whether we sow or reap or we don't sow and reap. The question is whether our works are done to and of the flesh or our works are done to and of the Spirit. That will determine whether our works will have lasting value. The irreconcilable contrast between the flesh and the Holy Spirit has been well established in the past three chapters. The path for the Christian life cannot begin with the Spirit and continue in the flesh, chapter 3, verse 3. Those according to the flesh persecute those according to the Spirit, past and present, chapter 4, verse 29. If we walk in the Spirit, we shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another. 
chapter 5, 16 to 17. Now here in chapter 6, the same general idea continues. The flesh ends in corruption, while the spirit leads to everlasting life. Now let me be clear, Paul's not saying that we work for salvation. Again, Christ finished that work. Instead, Paul's taking for granted and assuming that the one sowing in the Spirit is one already born in the Spirit. He's saying that the Spirit gives life to our good works just as it gave life to us. Not only does God give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you, through that same Spirit, your works are not in vain and your crown is imperishable. So that's why we must not grow weary in sowing in the spirit and doing good. We must not lose heart or we'll lose the potential harvest. Persevere in good works through the Holy Spirit. Paul concludes this section with verse 10. He encourages us to do good to all, but with a special focus on fellow Christians Now, we should certainly do this individually, but don't lose sight of the first-person plural. As we have opportunity, let us do good to all. Our outreach and in-reach must be a group effort. Perhaps the school year Friday nights could be a good opportunity to apply verse 10. That's why we're putting special emphasis on Awana and the accompanying adult ministries that evening. We have this chance to work together during the school year and reach children, parents, and many others with the gospel and the word of God. I hope that you can join us in this endeavor. But before we head out to the field together, before we gird up our loins and roll up our sleeves, I can see no better team-building exercise than one Christ himself has given us. It's the Lord's Supper. Before we get to the task that is unfinished, let us meditate on the work that is finished, the redemption accomplished through the sacrifice of Jesus. It is a reminder that we are a free church because our Lord paid the price of freedom. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that for many of us here, we have believed in the gospel and for a long time we believed. But Lord, the challenge now is not only our individual growth, but to grow together to exist together, to fight sin, to support those who are teaching your truth, and to work in sowing and reaping. Lord, some of us are tired. Some of us are weary. Some of us have lost heart. And we've been at this state for a long time. But we ask that as we look at your word again, as we think about the gospel again, that we'll be strengthened again this upcoming year, this, this upcoming week, or even just the rest of the day today. 
that we would do our part. Because we are grateful, because we haven't given so much, because your son has lifted the burden off our shoulders, may we lift the burdens off of others' shoulders. May we love others. May we do good to all. May we be motivated by the gospel, to be a gospel community. Pray all these things in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.